Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each month we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. This month, we're looking at the Third Sector Reader Manifesto, which featured in the most recent edition of the magazine. We asked what fundamental changes the charity sector need to make to ensure it's doing the best possible job in the future. We'll also directly hear from some of the contributors to that feature. And as ever, we'll be bringing you our coronavirus care package, good things in the sector that have cheered us up this month. But first, if you follow us on social media, you'll know that this has been a really tough month for Third Sector. Haymarket, our publisher, is not immune to the financial pressures that our audience will be so familiar with as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And as a result of that, we have very sadly lost three members of our much-loved editorial team. So Andy, um, our former editor, who will be known to many people, um, both as editor and then later on as business director, Carl, our art director, and Peter, our sub-editor or production editor, made a huge contribution to the publication and losing them all has been a real blow. Uh, they've all been um, with Third Sector or with Haymarket since long before I joined and it's just really not going to be the same without you guys and you are going to be really missed. We miss you all very much. So, Rebecca, what else have you been up to this month? Really not a lot. I don't know if anybody else is sort of struggling when you're on sort of family Zoom calls and things to to, uh, come up with things that you've actually been doing. But um, I got back on my bike for the first time in ages. Uh, This is not necessarily the precursor to uh, cycling to Amsterdam again, but uh, it's certainly been good to be about. Um, Yeah, and uh, currently I've been building a blanket fort to record this podcast in, um, which is part of my actual job. Now the sunny weather is out, people are using strimmers in the gardens again. Yes, so I'm trying very desperately to dampen the sound. But yeah, as part of my actual professional job, I built a blanket fort. And I'm not unhappy about that, I'm not going to lie. I think it's a very valuable use of your time. Mm -hmm. Uh, How about you? What have you been up to? So I just moved back to London, uh, having spent four months locked down in Norfolk. So I am getting accustomed to big city life again. I'm learning to wear a mask every day um, when I'm going out and about and going to the shops. And one of the things that they don't tell you is that when you put a mask on and you also have to wear glasses, your glasses steam up. And that was not included in the official government guidance anywhere. So the first time I put a mask on, I was actually driving my car <laughs> and I got behind the wheel. I pulled off and my glasses immediately steamed up and I had like a real Velma moment from Scooby-Doo where I was going, I can't see a thing and sort of weaving down the road. But I have now learned that you don't wear... Yeah, sorry, I'm laughing at that. That's not funny. <laughs> it's fine. It was uh, on a quiet road. But yeah, the, the glasses and the mask thing is something I'm having to adjust to now. So I think I'm going to have to start wearing contact lenses every time I want to leave the house and uh, be doing my mask wearing. As the initial shock of the coronavirus crisis wears off and we begin adjusting to a strange and unstable new normality, one of the biggest questions facing the charity sector is, what now? We all know the sector has done some amazing things in the past few months, in spite of unbelievable challenges. And we know that so many charities are continuing to struggle and are having to make some really tough decisions in order to keep their essential services running for those who need them. But as we begin to move from crisis action to thinking more about recovery, something we keep hearing at Third Sector over and over again is that need for a long-term vision to enable charities to support those who need them. Yes, this pandemic has been a disaster, 
but it has presented the sector with an opportunity to commit to changing for the better, which you assume is something that would be welcomed. So Third Sector surveyed around 100 people from across the sector and conducted a series of in-depth interviews on what the future might bring and on what changes our readers think need to be made. So what did we find? Well, as ever with these things, it probably threw up more questions than answers, but we were able to group the responses into some broad categories and come up with some calls to action based on what you, our readers, told us. The first of these was around funding, specifically trusts and foundations and statutory funding. Obviously, the response of funders during the crisis has been amazing. We've had the London funders kind of pledging, grouping together and pledging to do whatever they could to change their processes to support those they were funding. We've had uh, funders like the Julia and Hans Rousing Trust, who made 10 million available for charities and completely changed the way they uh, operate and the way they hand out grants uh, in order to be more supportive in this moment. But many people felt there were changes that were also needed to be made in the long term, too. Very ambitiously, we have tried to condense this absolutely huge issue into three actionable points. So this is what we came up with as a top line. The first thing is that funders are going to have to work collaboratively with the people they fund, offering unrestricted and long-term funding, as well as funding for core costs, as well as projects. Secondly, uh, there's going to be a need to fund infrastructure and strategy, rather than just that frontline work, important though it is. And finally, the government should be offering grants rather than contract funding. Now, Laura Solomons, who is the head of donor relations at the Sutton Trust, had some really interesting thoughts on how fundraisers and funders could work together as we work through this new model. As someone who works as a fundraiser and is also a trustee of a grant giving foundation, I've had the enormous privilege of seeing both perspectives and also how often charities and funders misunderstand one another or aren't talking to one another. So what I'd like to see change is for fundraisers and those working at charities to have more confidence in advocating for what they need, unrestricted or flexible multi-year funding. I hope then that in turn, funders will be even clearer on what they will and won't fund and why, and streamline their application processes so that fundraisers can make the best use of their resources and time. In response to the pandemic, funders have had to trust charities to adapt and get the help to where it's most needed. And I'd like to see this continue, for funders to fund missions or systems change rather than specific projects. So really one of the key things Laura was saying there is about charities uh, really advocating for themselves and for what they need. And I think that's an issue both about um, funders having faith and responding well to that kind of uh, assertive Uh, advocating for yourself but also charities having the confidence to do that in the first place and I think that's really where this kind of idea of partnership working comes in Um, and I think it'd be really really interesting to see the kind of work that was happening if we saw more of that. Absolutely. So the second area that we identified was around fundraising as well. Now, we've seen calls for fundamental overhauls of fundraising for a very long time now. The feeling that the old reliance on face-to-face fundraising and direct debits was having diminishing returns is a well-known one in the sector. And also, there's this idea that people are now looking for something different from charities. They want to be directly involved in that process of doing good. So, yes, crises do have a tendency to reinforce the ideas people already have, Um, this is something that somebody said to me while I was uh, doing the article. And it, it does. I, th- I do think it rings true that people will tend to have a pet theory. And when something goes wrong, they'll go, see, if we'd been doing my thing, it would have played out differently. That said, with fundraising in particular, I think we've had a really interesting set of circumstances that face-to-face fundraising has been completely impossible for the last three months. 
So digital fundraising has become central. And we've also had groups like Mutual Aid offering people the chance to do good themselves directly for their neighbours. So it's really hard, I think, not to see this as a potential tipping point. Uh, Some of the people I spoke to for this included uh, Marcus Misson, the director of fundraising at WaterAid. And he's been one of those calling for change for a number of years now. One of the points that he's made a lot has been uh, this issue around connecting the donors directly to the people who are in need of help. So when you've got things like crowdfunding offering donors this opportunity, what is it that charities are offering? And for him, a lot of the big issue here is about staying relevant. We've had people like Marcus Misson, like Lisa Harwood, Paul De Gregorio, a whole host of eminent fundraisers saying we need to change the way that we are fundraising. Um, Partly that's because we've got Things like crowdfunding, where people can connect directly with those who need help and fund it themselves. So why do they need this uh, charitable body in the way, dictating how and when help will be given? Lisa Harwood has some really interesting ideas about co-creation, that it isn't simply about um, the charity coming up with fundraising materials and saying, this is the photo of the person that needs help, please give us the money, but actually working with both the donors and the people who uh, need the help to create content and and solutions as well. So the manifesto recommendations we came up with from this were exploring sources of income that do not rely solely on traditional direct debit giving. So that may be around um, exploiting some of the assets you've already got, such as knowledge or um, physical assets, uh, such as property. Um, Working with donors and service users more directly to allow both to feel part of creating change and consider joint fundraising campaigns with other charities focused on the causes or issues they want to solve. Uh, And we do have a model for doing this already in the sector. We have the DEC, we do have the new emergencies partnership. So all of these models are starting to develop. And I think it is something that we could see expanding in the future and hopefully will. I think it's that long term vision. Again, we're seeing these happening in the short term and there are sort of isolated incidents and models which are working really well. It's about how it becomes more a part of that structure. And I think that connection with donors and service users particularly is a really, really interesting moment in the current climate. We have seen so much talk about the mutual aid groups and how they link in with movements like um, Extinction Rebellion, which are flatter and have less structure in them. Um, And this collective desire to volunteer and to help out has been so, so profound throughout the pandemic. I think it's going to be so interesting to see how and if charities can work to harness that short term crisis energy and turn it into something that is long term and sustainable and works to serve both sides of that conversation. Absolutely. Uh, So next up on our manifesto, changing the conversation with government. So one thing Duncan Shrubsole of the Lloyds Bank Foundation for England and Wales pointed out to me was that if you think about all the issues that have had to be raised with government that have needed special attention during the pandemic, such as homelessness, prisons, universal credit, victims of domestic violence, so many of those were initiated by charities. And yet the government remains at best ambivalent to the sector. So the feeling for a lot of our respondents was that charities need to get noisy. They need to start shouting to the government, to the public, to the media about what they do and how important it is. Now, we've seen a lot of this. We have. Um, The Never More Needed campaign has been incredible and we've seen incredible work by the umbrella bodies and the leadership along charities about making their case to the government. So our recommendations were that the sector should continue to build on the absolutely brilliant Never More Needed campaign, creating a campaign that explains the vital work that charities do to the public, the media and the government. 
and also that government should play a part in promoting the sector and the work that it does to the public. I have to say, though, I do feel pretty cynical about government support in the current moment. It feels as though charities have been running the whole gamut of tactics to try and make that case and emphasise just how bad this situation is. And yet, when I was um, on the radio recently... Just dropping in there that I was on the radio recently. Woo! It's my first my first radio interview. I'm a little overexcited about it. But at the point I'm making is that the interviewer asked me if this was a situation, if the financial crisis within charities was something that individuals or government needed to solve. Can you imagine any other sector in which resolving a £12 billion deficit would fall onto individuals, apart from possibly, you know, the NHS? <laughs> I mean, Rebecca, you've written for... It's bonkers. You've written for Third Sector for far longer than I have. You've observed this relationship between government and charity for longer. So I would really love to hear your thoughts. I mean, what is your take on how the government views this sector? And can anything actually be achieved while the value of what charities do seemingly is just willfully being misunderstood? I think there is a difference between individual politicians and how they relate to charities and government as a whole. Lots of individual politicians will have charities in their constituencies or charities they work with on particular issues that they care about that they work in partnership incredibly well with, um, but then can still go on to you know, make these comments uh, about charity as a whole and the sector as a whole or charities in general. I also think with the government and the public, there's this, just this really patchy understanding of what charity does. Like either they're a cuddly group of volunteers who don't really need paying or they're basically businesses and they operate in ways that are a bit suspect and we're not really comfortable with that. Which, I mean, particularly with government is a little bit ironic because often charities have to behave kind of in more corporate ways if they want to attract government statutory funding right. uh, for services, which the public don't really understand that charities offer a lot of those services and, and are doing them on contract for government. So I think there's a lot of work to be done educating the public and politicians on the reality of charities. Um, and, and particularly that it's not about government versus individuals, to go back to your point, that at their best, charities are a mechanism for government and individuals to work together to make changes. That said, I do completely understand your cynicism. Like, I think a lot of people will be listening to this and going, we know, we've, we've tried this. And, and they have been shouting from the rooftops for years about what they do. And we, between us, had a bit of a debate about whether or not this should go in the manifesto at all. And we have seen charities working together with one voice, like never before to explain their value. So maybe now we will start to see change. Maybe this is the moment. But it does require a willingness from government, which, you know, I accept... We're just not seeing at the moment. That said, as a journalist and as someone who talks to fundraisers a lot for a living, one thing I do know is that if you don't ask, you don't get. And that's why we've included this in the manifesto, because government should be playing that role and we should be asking them whether or not we think it, it, it's going to happen anytime soon. Couldn't agree with you more. The next area of the manifesto is an interesting one. Speak to me about this, breaking out of institutional silos. So the question here we originally asked was around mergers, which are a bit of a Marmite thing in the sector, I found. Either people think that, you know, there are too many charities, that, that it, the system we have at the moment is creating competition, it's creating duplication, it's wasteful. Others would argue, actually, you need small organisations that work on very small granular uh, issues or on a very hyper-local level. Uh, and if you make them bigger, you lose a lot of that attention to detail. You lose a lot of that granular specialist knowledge. And actually, the response that came back was, yes, mergers are fine where they're appropriate. And, you know, there are issues around finances, but also charities should consider them not just, I think at the moment, 
mergers are often a last resort for charities that are really struggling. That said, there was also this feeling that the sector needs to start working together better, even as separate organisations. So the answer isn't necessarily mergers, but working together in kind of loose federations or just partnerships that weren't actually necessarily merged merged organisations. We had consultant Philip Perrett, who uh, had some things to say about these kind of loose federation models. In June, in answer to a question in third sector survey, I said it might be worth thinking about loose federations more than total mergers. Charities often resort to merging with another similar corresponding charity to survive and thrive. This year includes, amongst others, the health and social care charity Humankind, merging with Devon-based EDP drug and alcohol charity, and Build Africa becoming part of Street Child. But mergers are hard for everyone, and they come at a cost. It is usually painful for a while, change often is, but for many of us working in the not-for-profit sector, it can literally feel like everything you've committed to worked huge hours towards is being thrown over. Clearly, I've had a bad experience, but I do know that mergers can be life-saving for charities, for their services and financially can be the only way to preserve those services. But the question is, is there another way to go before you get to this stage? Mike Adamson, Red Cross CEO, said in a third sector blog recently that charities of all sizes must find ways to collaborate more and potentially consider consolidating. He's right, And there are already plenty of examples of loose federations, such as the Small Charities Coalition, Akivo, or specialists such as Copseo, providing a unifying body within the armed forces charity sector. So my final point is, use those loose federations already in place. Don't isolate your charity. We're not all equally in this together, despite what some might say. So collaborate and grow. Grow and collaborate. And then we also had Adila Worley, who's the chief executive of Charity Comms, talking about how, you know, actually this working at the end of the day is beneficial to the people that charities are set up to help. And that is the whole point of the exercise. Many organisations are in survival mode at the moment. but I think we need to seize the opportunity to learn from the crisis and build for the future. Collaboration and partnership have played such a significant role. We need to let go of brand competition and seek common cause and ask ourselves if there's a faster way more efficient way to achieve our mission by joining forces with others. Whether that's a coalition of five health charities who created an online hub to provide mental well-being support for frontline staff, supermarkets joining forces with furloughed charity shop staff to run food banks, or the coalition of voluntary organisations who secured government funding for the sector, these partnerships can transform the reach and impact of positive social change. And we need to sustain them if we are to emerge from the pandemic stronger and more relevant to people's lives. So the uh, recommendations we came up with from our manifesto for this were to focus more on working in formal and informal ways to achieve the mission and not worrying about who takes the credit. I think there has been an issue for a long time about slapping charities' logos on things or being seen as being the charity that solved the problem rather than solving the problem and, and this kind of working is about letting go of some of that ego. And then also that mergers should be led by a consideration of what is best for the beneficiaries and the mission, not just the finances. The final area we looked at in the manifesto was about shifting power. And look, this is a huge area. We are never going to cover this in a two minute clip. There are so many issues in the sector where when you boil them down, what's at the heart of them is actually power. Who has that power and how that power is used? And we see it in issues around diversity, the treatment of beneficiaries, the word beneficiaries is incredibly... Super problematic. Yeah, it's super problematic. It's it's super contested for all sorts of good reasons. Um, 
and you know and the disparity you get between small and large charities the geographical issues for rural charities or those far away from london this is a huge area um and you know we kind of set out to try and cover this as broadly as we could but obviously we were never going to get to all of it and i mean i think it's worth saying that on the particular issue around diversity we will be looking at that in more depth next month on the podcast and we also looked at it elsewhere in the magazine but it is just as a mission statement third sector completely believes that the sector needs to get to grips with its diversity issues if it's going to have the kind of impact and if it's going to address the power imbalances that exist. Paul de Gregorio was somebody that I spoke to and he um, is very good at explaining how power is changing within society and what ramifications that has for the charity sector. So we've asked him to explain a little bit about what old power is and then what new power looks like. So what is old power and how is new power different? In the survey, I made reference to the concepts of new and old power. And um, I must stress that they aren't my concepts. They're concepts that I picked up um, in a brilliant book called New Power by a chap called Jeremy Hymans and uh, Henry Timms. And they describe old power as, as, as power that works like currency held by a few people. Once gained, it's jealously guarded and the powerful have loads of power to spend. It's closed, it's inaccessible and leader-driven and downloads and captures, whereas new power is very different. It operates like a current, it's made by many, it's open, participatory, peer-driven. It uploads and it distributes. By water or electricity, it's most forceful when it surges. And the important thing about new power is the goal is not to hoard it, but to channel it. So channel it on behalf of the people who believe in the same thing that you do, whether that be other organisations or the public at large. So New Power is a book. It's not the playbook for charities in terms of how to handle a kind of post-COVID recovery. Um, It doesn't contain all of the answers. But I think the concept of New Power and Old Power is a great place for leaders and actually anyone in the sector to be thinking about their organisation's response to COVID and to the huge shock that the economy has been through and the huge shock that people have been through in terms of their personal um, experience of the COVID crisis and the lockdown period. I genuinely think that organisations that adopt a new power outlook, um, organisations which seek to attract people towards the cause based on values and the mission and their goals, as opposed to trying to sell people transactional products to kind of support their work and support the organization's way out of the crisis. Those organizations that bring people in where there's a genuine connection on values and a genuine commitment to collaboration across multiple actors will do the best and will be in the strongest position to bounce back hardest from the horror that COVID is throwing at us. And the whole concept of new power really leans into the concepts of people and people power. And I have a real sense that um, organising people and demonstrating to them that they have power and organisations trying to channel that power towards their objectives and towards the goals which they have are a way that we will um, bounce back from the COVID crisis. So I really believe that people power is going to be more important than ever before. I don't think as a nation we're going to allow the homeless back into the streets after lockdown. I don't think we're going to allow the domestic abuse and domestic violence numbers 
that we were seeing on the front pages fade from the front pages of our newspapers. And I don't think as a society we're going to tolerate the huge increase in the use of food banks, which are going to be happening in the aftermath of COVID. And I know that it's not an option for us to ignore the racial racial inequality in society and in our organisations. So new power for me basically comes down to leadership. Um, It's entirely up to us as individuals to make sure that the organisations we work for uh, react to the challenges to society prevented by COVID-19 and understand that we'll respond better if we work with the people who are impacted by the crisis and not working on their behalf, which takes leadership from all of us. So to try and condense that down again, we are saying charities need to consider how power works in their organisations and what can be done to empower those they support as equal partners in the process of creating change. Video meetings should remain an option, even when social distancing measures are abandoned, which allows non-London organisations access to key decision makers. That was just something that came out of uh, a lot of answers from the survey saying, actually, this has been really, the, the pandemic, while it's created a whole lot of problems, this has been one of the real positives, is that suddenly an organisation in Sheffield or in Manchester can access politicians in Westminster without having to be on the kind of six o'clock train to get to London in time for a nine o'clock meeting. Um, And that is something that I think we should be able to, to keep hold of. Finally, charities must wholeheartedly commit to improving the diversity and accessibility of their organisations across the board. And that can be through mechanisms such as training, quotas or mentoring, but it must come alongside a holistic look at where those power structures in your organisations lie. So, yeah, these are the recommendations that our readers uh, brought together for the future of the sector. Let us know what you think about them. We're very keen for this to start a debate and start a conversation and for this conversation to be ongoing. Let us know what you think. Tweet us, email us, get involved and do read the feature as well, because it goes into far greater detail than we've managed to cobble through in this 20 minutes. Yes, everyone is suffering from severe lockdown fatigue and there is no clear end in sight. But it's important to find the bright sparks where you can. So once again, we've made a list of a few interesting or cheerful stories that have caught our attention in the last month. First up, Rebecca, tell me your good story. Uh, So we've got the Disasters Emergency Committee uh, raising £15 million in the first week or so. Um, That figure is correct as of Thursday when we're recording this. It may well have gone up uh, by the time you hear this. It's never so. This is for their coronavirus appeal, um, specifically working with uh, people in refugee camps, displaced populations, the Rohingya, Muslims, uh, Yemen, a whole number of places where these people are some of the most vulnerable people in the world generally. And then coronavirus is happening, and you know, with all, everything that's going on at home and the huge impact of coronavirus in the UK, it's important not to forget that this is going on. And this £15 million is not enough, but it's a great start. And I mean, having spoken to the DC before, these sorts of crises are generally not the ones that prompt the most donations. So there is a real difference that you can see in the amount of money that is raised by um, for natural disasters like earthquakes, landslides, that sort of thing, flooding. They tend to raise so much more money from the British public for whatever reason from uh, than, uh, na- than disasters sort of uh, like famine or kind of disasters created by war or displacement. Um, and it's weird that this one kind of sits in the middle there, but it does seem to be doing pretty well, which I think is, is, is a really good start and really encouraging. Uh, so, Emily, your next thing. 
My first thing is actually about Charity So White. They are the anti-racism campaign group that has been incredibly active across the sector for the last year. Um, Charity So White recently announced that they're going to be taking the next couple of months to step back from their public profiles on Twitter. They're going to reflect on how the last year has worked for the Groundswell campaign group and they're going to take time to rest and they're going to think about what the group needs to look like and where it needs to be working in the longer term. I think this is a sign of a really, really healthy culture. Um, we do live in this always on culture. I know people burn out a lot. It's a big problem. And I think being mindful enough to take that time to pull back and to take time for yourself and think about how your strategy is going to work in the future is really important. And I think we should all actually be doing more of that. I'd also like to say a broader thank you to Charity So White for the work they've done over the last year. They have been absolutely relentless in highlighting inequality across the sector. It is such an important conversation which needs to keep taking place now. They've been shining a really important spotlight on this issue, which is a long running issue in the sector. And they have been doing it in a way that comes with great humour and in a way that really, really can't be ignored. And they have done all of this in their own time, unpaid for their work, um, out of a sheer desire to see the sector improving. I think it's really, really remarkable. And I can't wait to see what they're going to be doing next. What have you got up next, Rebecca? What have I got next? Uh, Stormzy. Everybody loves Stormzy. So Stormzy pledged £10 million funding over 10 years towards developing a new funding programme dedicated to supporting young black people to achieve their full potential. Um, he's working with BBC Radio 1 Extra and then BBC Radio, uh, sorry, BBC Children in Need has pledged uh, to match the £10 million funding. Um, and I just think it, it's a really kind of great initiative of somebody they're kind of with this power with this money putting their money where they think the problem is and fair play to him um yeah got a little bit stormsy frankly good stuff my good piece of news editorially is the arrival of stephen delahunty to the third sector editorial team Woo! in what has been a really tough time it's a great bit of news for us so stephen is joining us from pr week magazine but he's also worked on regional and national titles and is now coming on to work as our senior news reporter we're really really pleased to have him on the team and he also hosts a radio show so i'm very hopeful that we will be able to get him on mic very soon and you can all hear his dulcet tones yeah, really excited to have Stephen join us and, and to have kind of a, a full-time dedicated reporter again on Third Sector because um, I think it's, 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 you know, it's a huge role and it's really, really important to have somebody on the team. So, yeah. Excited for that. Yes. Um, so for my third one, it's way too twee to say our readers have been my good thing this month. It's, it's too much, but uh, yeah, screw it. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Uh, so our readers, it's been just a really bruising month for the team at Third Sector with losing Andy, Peter and Carl and your messages of support um, both public and private uh, shout out to the person who wrote me a poem an actual rhyming poem um, it's just been absolutely unbelievably lovely and helpful and the people who've kind of you know thought to check in with us it it like this sounds so trite but it, it really does help you remember like why you do this job uh, and, and that, that what we are doing means something and that what we write has an impact so thank you so much guys like I, I appreciate this. this is so saccharine and gross and I will go back to making snarky comments in a minute but thank you very much I'd like to Rebecca um, I'd like to Rebecca I'd like to I'd like to echo <laughs> Rebecca's words there um, the readership you're all brilliant 
um, you are struggling through an incredibly tough time yourself. So the fact that you can uh, find find it the time to even send us the occasional nice email or nice message, it makes such a huge difference to us. It makes our days go with so much more of a swing. And the support that we have had from you over the last couple of months has been so, so important to us. So yes, a huge, huge thank you from everyone in editorial there. I think my final good thing then, I would really like to celebrate Shelter's recent legal win for its No DSS Discrimination campaign. If you weren't familiar with the campaign, there is a massive problem in this country with landlords and letting agents rejecting potential tenants who rely on housing benefits from the Department of Social Security, which is where the DSS comes from. These so-called no DSS policies unfairly lock hundreds of thousands of people out of homes they could otherwise afford simply because they receive a housing benefit. Now, Shelter have been campaigning to stop these prejudices and the charity took on the case of a single mum after a letting agent refused to rent a property to her and her two children, which then resulted in them becoming homeless. Now, previously, landlords could only be found guilty of indirect discrimination if they refused to rent tenants who were on housing benefits. On this occasion and on this case, the judge has ruled that the no DSS rental bans are actually against equality laws. This proves that the practice is not only morally wrong, it's actually illegal. So the chief executive of Shelter, Polly Neat, said that this momentous ruling should be the nail in the coffin for no DSS discrimination. And I think it's a huge step. And we are all wishing Shelter the very, very best of luck in the next stages of their campaign. It is great to see this kind of change being driven from the sector. Absolutely. We will be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Thank you to Laura Solomons, Adila Worley, Philida Parrott, Paul DeGorio, and to everybody else who contributed to the feature, as well as to the producer, Ben Lonsborough, and to you for listening. <laughs>